Well, I trust your heart has been warmed as we've been singing those songs that have focused our hearts on this Father's Day, on the nature of our true Heavenly Father, on all that God is to us. And and now it's time for us to come and to sit under uh, His Word as we read it and, and then consider it together. So won't you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be reading uh, that well-known parable of the Good Samaritan from verse 25 through to 37. Luke chapter 10, reading from verse 25, and I'm reading to you from the English Standard Version. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Well, this is God's word, and uh, Matt has already prayed uh, that the Lord would be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of it to us this morning. So we return to our studies in the parables of Jesus as we come to consider this very well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. In actual fact, this is such a well-known parable that Reference to it has even become part of our English idioms. For example, whenever we see someone doing something of of great kindness to another person, especially if that person is a stranger, we say, you are such a good Samaritan. And, And this is obviously a great compliment to the person having gone the extra mile to help out the stranger in need. So perhaps you see a lady stranded next to the road with a flat wheel and you stop your car to help her fit her spare. What a good Samaritan. Well, I want to propose at the outset today that our understanding of this well-known parable is quite possibly far off base. And our use of this phrase to describe someone who helps a stranger change a flat tire is actually used with the exact opposite meaning of what Jesus intended when he told this parable. 
You see, for most people, this parable is a story about how we as Christians should do kind things, generous things, helpful things to others in order to receive God's approval, God's blessing on our lives. And so when we are rewarded with the label of having been a good Samaritan for something that we may have done, well, we feel very chuffed that we've lived up to the requirements of God's word lived up to the expectation of Jesus in this parable. Jesus, after all, said at the end, go and do likewise. And, and so we've gone and we've done likewise. And, and so surely then we are headed for eternal life. Well, I hope to show you today that that understanding of this parable is exactly what the lawyer was hoping it to be. But the point of Jesus telling the parable was, in actual fact, to achieve a very different result. This parable is, is not a parable spoken mainly to Christians about how we should treat other people. Although, yes, there is a sense in which we can learn something about that as well. But, but this is a parable spoken mainly to non-Christians about how to become a Christian. It's not a parable which lowers the standards of God's righteous requirements to a list of, of do-good activities of kindness which will then make us acceptable to God. No, in actual fact, it is a parable which is meant to pull the rug of self-righteousness and pride out from beneath our feet so that we fall face down before the Savior of our souls and cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me, a desperate and helpless sinner. So let's take a look together then at Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37, and let's depend upon God the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts from this portion of God's word today. And so we start by setting the scene in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's vital that we don't skip over this verse, because if we do, we will rush into the parable, and we're going to miss the whole point of, of why Jesus told it. The reason Jesus told the parable is because a certain lawyer, a, a scribe or a religious leader who was a, a specialist in the law of God, asked him a very important and direct question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So the context of this parable is an unbeliever asking Jesus what he needs to do in order to inherit eternal life. And there is undoubtedly no more important question in the whole world than the one that this man asked. And so we should all be very interested in what Jesus has to say in response. But before we look at Jesus' response, I need to explain that, that our English translations tend to, to hide something of the real meaning of this man's question. You see, in the Greek language of the New Testament, there is something known as the tense of a verb, which is somewhat different to our English understanding of a verb's tense. We understand past, present, and future. 
But this man's question uses what is known as an aorist tense. And without getting too technical here, the aorist tense is a kind of completed action tense. It's a a one-point-in-time action. And so a more literal translation would be something like this. Teacher, what having done will I inherit eternal life? Do you see the difference? This man was wanting to check a list of actions that once having done them, he will then inherit eternal life. He, he was coming to Jesus to, to test Jesus, to see if, if his interpretation of the law and Jesus' interpretation of the law measured up to see whether it suited him, in, in which case he could then relax, knowing that he had completed what was required by the law in order to get to heaven. Wouldn't we all like the answer to that simple question? Lord, teacher, tell me one thing or or even tell me a couple of things which I need to do, which I need to complete so that once I've done them, having done them, I will inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus takes this man's question and, and turns it back onto him. Well, says Jesus in verse 26, you are the specialist in the law. What do you think the law says? How do you interpret God's law in response to your question? Now, we must remember that this man was an expert in the law of God. He was a devout Jew. He would have recited the summary of the law on a daily basis. And so this specialist in the law promptly responds and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So he clearly knew his Old Testament scripture. After all, he he was the expert in the law. And so he kind of rattles off this Sabbath school answer without any difficulty. Now, we know that the Ten Commandments are, in a sense, a, a summary of all the laws of God recorded for us in Scripture. The first four uh, of the Ten Commandments explain uh, the laws for man in relation to God. And then the second six explain God's laws for man in relation to his neighbor, to his fellow human being. And so this, the Ten Commandments in and of themselves are a summary of all the law of God. But this man's answer was a summary of the Ten Commandments. It's a summary of the summary. The whole of the law in a nutshell. If if you want to reduce all of the, the laws of God in Scripture, all the requirements of God, down to the simplest and most concise summary possible, you have it right before you in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Simply put, if we have love, we don't need any laws. What do I mean by that? Well, if we love God and we love our fellow human beings, we don't need any laws because everything we do will be motivated by a love for God and by a love for others that will seek the benefit and the blessing of others. Now, verse 28 is crucial to the sequence of events which lead to the telling of the parable. 
Jesus then responds to the expert in the law, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now again, the English is lacking because our English language is a little bit brutish compared to the Greek. It's a little bit hidden here of what Jesus actually said. You see, the lawyer asked the question using the, the aorist tense. What things, having done them once and for all, will I inherit eternal life? And Jesus points him to the summary of the law, which is to love God with all your being and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says to him, now do this and you will live. But, and here's a a crucial but, Jesus responds and uses the Greek present continuous tense. In other words, Jesus says, do this continuously, do this perfectly, do this for all of your life and you will live. So the lawyer asks, what things, having done them, will get me into heaven? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God perfectly and fully always. And love your neighbor as yourself perfectly and fully always. And you will live. Now at this point, the the scribe, the lawyer, has dug himself a hole which no human being can ever get out of. Who can ever love God with all your heart and all your soul and and strength and mind perfectly, always? And then on top of that, love your neighbor as you love yourself, perfectly, always. Who on earth can do this? If, If that is what the law of God requires to inherit eternal life, then I am doomed to an eternity in hell. And so are you. This standard is quite simply impossible. It's unattainable. And we are all lost in our sin against God and our sin against our fellow human beings. Who can stand? See, at this point, Jesus' words were designed to bring this self-righteous lawyer to his knees. He should have cried, but Lord, that's impossible. I haven't done it once in my life so far. I can't do it today, and I could never hope of doing it for the rest of my life. So what then must I do to be saved? He should have, at that point, cried out, like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw that incredible vision of the glory and the, the holiness of God, and he said, Woe is me! I am I'm damned! For I'm a man of of sinfulness and I live among a people of of sinfulness and my eyes have beheld the, the perfect righteous standards of God and His holiness. But our lawyer doesn't do that, does he? No, instead, in verse 29, we we see the the depths of of human depravity. We see the, the hardness of his heart. Verse 29 says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Do you see the the incredible pride of this man? Self-righteous, sinful, deceptive pride? He doesn't even recognize that he has a problem in the God department, in the vertical department. 
According to him, he is okay with loving God perfectly. But just in case Jesus had a different definition of neighbor, well, he thought it best to, to check out who Jesus defined neighbor to be so that he could make sure that he was also sorted in that department as well. Notice the word that Luke uses, desiring to justify himself. This is a, a heavily loaded theological word in the Bible. This man didn't need to say anything further, but his conscience had been pricked. He felt perhaps for a brief moment the, the weight of his sin and his shortcomings. And instead of turning to Jesus for forgiveness and, and mercy, he sought rather to justify himself. He wanted to be declared righteous in God's sight by hopefully narrowing down the, the definition of neighbor to a very likable select few people. So that he would be able, as he thought, to then earn salvation and eternal life. Now, at this point, Jesus would have been totally justified to rebuke this man and then to point out his, his arrogance and his pride and, and to dismiss him. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, in grace... Jesus condescends to the low spiritual depths of this man and he tells him a story, a story which is intended not to show believers how to be kind to other people, but a story which was intended with all clarity and simplicity to show this man and to show us how desperately lost we are in hoping to earn eternal life through our obedience to the law of God. And so hopefully now, as we go through the parable again, you may be seeing it with, with different eyes. We will see the point which Jesus was trying to make to this lawyer. And so in verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going from Jerusalem, down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, from the context, it is clear that, that this was a Jewish man. Jerusalem was the, the capital city of Israel. It was the religious hub of the nation. And Jericho was another important religious city, a city where most of the priests lived when they were not on duty in the temple. Jerusalem sits about 2,000 feet above sea level, and Jericho about 1,000 feet below sea level. And so in the space of about 27 kilometers, you descend 3,000 feet, one kilometer. It was a, a steep road. It was a dangerous road. It was a place of, of natural danger with cliffs and crags and a place of human danger from robbers and bandits who used that road as a location to hijack innocent travelers. And this man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was hijacked. He was beaten, stripped of his clothing and possessions, and left half dead. What does half dead mean? Well, it means critically injured. In the process of dying, unless this man gets urgent medical attention, he will soon be dead. 
Well, who should come along uh, in verse 31 but none other than a priest? What an incredible stroke of, of good fortune for this man. After all, the, the priests were the servants of God. They worked in the temple. They knew the law of God, which says that, that we are to love our neighbors. Even if we find our enemy's donkey in a ditch, we should help it out and take it back to our enemy. Surely this priest, this man of God, would help our wounded pilgrim. But to our surprise, the priest sees the man and he crosses over to the other side of the road and he passes by as far as possible from the man as he could on that little narrow road. Well, it was not long after that, that a Levite, also from the family of, of priestly servants, a, a, another religious man, he comes along and he comes close to have a look. But then he backs off and he crosses over to the other side and he also continues on his way home. And we're not told why these men did not stop and help. And you can read in the commentaries all kinds of, of wonderful reasons and excuses why these men did not stop to help. And we would all love to know the reasons, wouldn't we? Because then perhaps we would feel that that gives us uh, an excuse to perhaps do the same when we are in a similar situation. But, but Jesus doesn't tell us the reasons because there was no reason. These men are characters of fiction and it's not important to the story to tell us why they did what they did. The point Jesus was making is that these two men did nothing, nothing. They were not neighborly to the dying man. They did not love this man as they loved themselves. Instead, they ignored him. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's turning the lawyer's question about who is my neighbor. He turns it around, wanting him to think about what it means to be neighborly, to show love to others as we love ourselves. And so the priest and the Levite, there's no love. They just passed by on the other side. Not only were these men fellow Jews of the dying man, who even in the narrowest Jewish definition would have been considered as neighbors, but they were both religious Jews. These were men who were supposed to love God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength who served God in the temple, surely they would be the most likely candidates to show this dying man the neighborly love that he needed. But what happens next would have then been a massive shock for the lawyer and, and Jesus' original hearers because who should come along next but a Samaritan? A Samaritan. Now we must understand the shocking nature of this twist in the story in terms of the social and, and the religious culture of the day. You see, the Jews absolutely hated the Samaritans and vice versa. Samaritans were, were half-breed Jews who had intermarried with pagan Gentiles hundreds of years ago who lived in a part of Israel called Samaria. There was religious animosity between them. There was racial animosity between them of the worst kind. They did not associate with each other and would actually do whatever they could to avoid any contact with each other. 
The Jews considered the Samaritans to be traitors to true Judaism because they had corrupted themselves. They had corrupted the pure religion of God by intermarrying with the pagan enemies of Israel. And so there existed this extreme, deep, traditional hatred between the two groups. And so who comes along in our story but a wretched Samaritan? If the the priest and the Levite had done nothing to rescue this man, well, he was then as sure as dead if his only hope was this unclean, despised Samaritan. But here is where our story takes a, a dramatic turn in verse 33. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Notice what Jesus said. The first two had no compassion. They had no love, which is why they just walked away. But this man, the Samaritan, he looked on this dying Jew with compassion. Now, what did this man do? Well, we need to see what he did in the light of the the lawyer's answer from the law. The law of God requires us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And that is exactly what this man did. He came to the dying Jew and did to him and for him everything that he would have wished would be done to himself if he had gone through the same situation. Firstly, we see that he did not concern himself with his own safety. He didn't worry about whether there were still bandits in the area, kind of hiding in ambush to to jump on him too. No, he, he rushed to the man and he gave him his full attention, even at the risk of his own life now being in danger. Then secondly, he attended to his immediate physical needs. He bound up the man's bleeding wounds with bandages, pouring on oil and wine. Now, let's just think about that for a minute. The man lying in the ditch had been stripped naked. It was not likely that the Samaritan was carrying a first aid kit with him. And so he probably took his own clothes or his own blankets and he tore them up to make bandages for this man. Then he took his wine, which was always carried along in journeys for drinking, as as the water in those days and in those places was often undrinkable. And so he pours the wine onto the man's wounds as a cleansing agent and an antiseptic. And then he uses his olive oil, which would have been carried along to cook food, to soothe and heal the man's wounds. Do you see that right from the outset, he did everything which he would have wished would be done to him if he were in that situation. He he divested himself of his own security and his own clothing and his own possessions for the well-being of the dying man who was his arch enemy. But then look at what he does next. He he took the man with his bruised and bloody body and he loads him into his vehicle, rather onto his donkey, and he transports him to a place of safety and care. But I want you to see something. 
The Samaritan did not drop him off at the local hospital's emergency theater, emergency department, because there was no such thing in those days. No, if this man was going to get any care, he needed to give it to him. And so he checks him into a motel, an inn, and he stays the night with him caring for this man. Now, if you have ever spent any amount of time in hospital or you've had to be the carer for a family member who is ill or recovering from surgery, then you should have the greatest respect for the high calling of a nurse. A nurse who has to care for patients through the night, checking their wounds, bringing food and water and and medicine, bringing bedpans and, and helping to bath those under their care. This is not the life of the rich and famous. But this Samaritan man books this beaten up Jew into an inn and then takes the role of a nurse for the whole night to care for this man. And then, if he hadn't already done enough, he goes to the innkeeper the next morning and he pays him to continue to take care of the man until he is well. Other commentators differ on how much the two denarii was worth, but it is agreed that it was somewhere between one month and two months worth of board and lodging at the local inn. But that's not all. He says to the innkeeper, when I return, if your costs have been more than what I paid you now, I will repay you the rest that I owe you. Again, the context tells us that innkeepers were not known to be the most savory of characters. And and so again, this Samaritan is, is opening himself up to be totally swindled in his generosity. But he does for this Jew what he would have wished someone would have done for him were he in the same situation. He loved this man as he loved himself. So there we have it. That's the parable. That's the story that Jesus told. And, And with the explanation now of the parable behind us, let me ask you this. How do you think helping a lady change her car tire next to the road compares with the story of the Good Samaritan? How does giving someone 10 rand at the robot compare to the story of the Good Samaritan? Have you ever loved anyone like this? Other than yourself, of course. Can you truly say that you have even loved a close family member or or friend like this? Where you put your own life and, and security at risk and divested yourself of your possessions to care for them. And then you transported them and looked after them sitting by their bedside through the night so as to minister to their every need. And then paid the costs of one to two months worth of hospital care. And then on top of that signed a blank check for any additional costs which may be incurred. Or maybe there are a few of you here today who are listening into this service who can say that you have done this for possibly one or two people in your lifetime. Maybe a spouse or a sick child perhaps. 
But the point of Jesus telling this story is that if you want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life, you need to love all people like this, even your enemies, all the time, 24-7, from your birth to your death. You see, the man asked Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? hoping to receive a a very narrow definition of neighbor so that he could show a, a little amount of love to people who are just like him, people who would love him back in return. But Jesus turns this man's question on its head in verse 36. Not who is my neighbor, but look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Which of the three showed neighborly love which God's law required? The priest and the Levite, they were considered neighbors of the Jew in the ditch, but they did not prove to be a neighbor to him. So which one of the three showed neighborly love to the man in the ditch? Look at verse 37. The lawyer at this point couldn't even bring himself to mention the Samaritan by name. And so he replies, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. The one who had compassion on him. The one who loved him as he loved himself. Well, says Jesus, if you want to know what to do, to inherit eternal life, then go and do likewise. And again, Jesus uses the very specific, present, continuous tense of the command to go and do likewise. It's not good enough to have done this once in your life to a close friend or family member. It's not even good enough that you do this regularly. No, if you love like this good Samaritan man continuously to every person who needs to be loved, even your enemies, then, says Jesus, you will inherit eternal life. We aren't told what the the lawyer did with Jesus' command. But what we know for certain is that he never, ever achieved the standard which Jesus set down in this parable. Because the standards of God's righteous demands are impossible for any human being to ever achieve. If you are here today, if you're watching online and you are wanting to know what you must do to be saved, what you must do, what you must achieve to inherit eternal life, well, Jesus comes and he gives you the requirements of God's law. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Do this continuously, perfectly, for all of your life, and you will inherit eternal life. So we don't know how the lawyer responded to this, and really that is not our concern today. Our concern is how are we going to respond to this? 
If you have any hope of ever saving yourself through the, the works of the law, then the parable of the Good Samaritan is not meant to spur you on to try harder, but it's meant to drive you in despair to the feet of the one telling the story and to cry out to him in the words of Psalm 130. Oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be honored and worshipped. The point Jesus is trying to make this morning is that on one level, we are the priest and the Levite. We have fallen so short of the requirements of God's law that we have no hope. None whatsoever of ever saving ourselves. It's impossible. But on another level this morning, this parable is a very clear picture that each one of us is the man in the ditch. We have been spiritually hijacked by our own sin. We've been robbed of everything that we thought of value and significance in this life. And we are not just half dead. According to Ephesians 2, we are very dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And what we need more than anything else is for the good Samaritan, Jesus himself, the one who was rejected by his own people, but who came to us while we were still his enemies. And while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, he came and had compassion on us. He divested himself of everything, his security, his comforts, his possessions, even his own life. So that we might be made alive and given the fullness of his perfect righteousness. This parable this morning is meant to drive us to Jesus. Meant to drive us to the cross where he not only finds us and and patches all our spiritual wounds, but through his perfect forgiveness, he restores us to become the people that God intended for us to be. He breathes his Holy Spirit into our hearts. He makes us new creations. And he not only paid on the cross the price for our sins past, but he paid the full price of the law against all of our sins past, present, and future. This is the point of the parable. To humble us before the Savior of the world as we run to the one who shows us mercy. We don't know if the lawyer ever got the point of the parable. The question this morning is, do you get it? And if so, how will you respond? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for this well-known story that Jesus told. and, And yet we must... Confess that perhaps we have missed the point of it for so long. Taking from this story a kind of moralism by which we can try and puff ourselves up in our good works. 
Lord, we pray today that your word would have searched our hearts, revealed to us the inadequacies of even our very best deeds, even our finest hour, fall so short of loving you with all our heart and soul and strength and mind and even coming close to loving our neighbors as ourselves. So we ask, Lord God, that you would strip us of any pride, any self-righteousness, any sense of, of accomplishment in terms of our salvation. And that we would run afresh to you this morning as the good Samaritan. Forgive us for so often reading ourselves into the good Samaritan. Instead of seeing ourselves in the ditch. And you as the good Samaritan. Help us to run to you. Help us to find not only forgiveness and healing but new life and eternal life in the one who came to give himself for our salvation. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love. And we do pray as we go out from here, it would change our attitude to those around us. It would break our hearts for those around us who we have rejected and not shown your love to. Forgive us for when we have treated our enemies as we believed they deserved, instead of recognizing that you never treated us as we deserved. And so as we grasp more and more what you have done for us, that our salvation is all a work of your mercy and your compassion and your grace, may we as changed people seek to make you known, practically, in word, and in deed, and in the sharing of the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Won't you make us your ambassadors, ambassadors of the good Samaritan, as we seek to live out this understanding of your grace and your mercy for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, asking that he might be glorified in our lives and through us as a church. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.